my middle child has now decided that he loves poetry and he participated in a poetry slam here at the library. You know, one of his poems I think was about the bathroom, which was pretty awesome. Um, and he, so afterwards he's like, well, I came in second to last. <laughs> I was, I was the only one who didn't do like big feeling poems. But it was, it was really wonderful to see him um, write his own poem and get up there and share it and you know, the bringing a laugh to someone in two minutes or less, like that's pretty great. That was Trisha Allen, a children's librarian at Ilsley Public Library here in Middlebury, Vermont. We won't be sharing her son's poetry slam performance with you today but you will hear three pieces published in the most recent issue of New England Review. From Middlebury College, at the foot of the Green Mountains in Middlebury, Vermont, this is NER Out Loud by New England Review. I'm Rahama Weil. Today, you'll hear the voices of Jan Beatty, Greg Johnson, and Jacob Meyer, authors reading their own words straight from the pages of New England Review, 40.4. Each of these pieces speaks to an experience of loss, or, at the very least, a discovery of loss, and each is steeped in its own unique and very American sense of place. If you'd like to follow along as you listen, head to our website at nereview. Dot com, where you can purchase an ebook or subscribe to receive our print editions. Here's Jan Beatty with her poem, The Body Wars. This is Jan Beatty, The Body Wars. I walked into the woods bleeding. I left the town and mourned. Midnight in Alaska, still light, and I was alone, walking into the Sitka woods. It had been one year since I'd bled and longer since I'd fucked anyone. I was propelled forward, into the thickness, into the needles and dirt of Sitka spruce, and stupidly, not even afraid of bear. My father, the person I clung to, needed to stay alive, had died six months before. He was the only one who made sense in my body, and his leaving was the impossible thing. I didn't yet know my own wars and how to name them. So during my father's sickness, when I stopped bleeding, the gynecologist said, well, it's stress. And did I know that in World War II, the women paratroopers stopped having periods? I was stunned by his directness, intensity, earnestness. You are in a war, he said. I didn't know what to do with that, and so I got on a boat to Alaska, the Alaska Marine Highway, slept on the deck until I froze. Then the shipman gave me a hanging bunk and slipped me food from the cafeteria. They said, you can sleep here, but watch out for the bow thrusters. I had no idea what they meant, and so the sound burst open and my berth swayed, and it was time to get off. It was a time of great changes, and days later I'm wandering the woods at midnight, feeling lost and found in this northern place, and it was there I felt the blood start to move, 
felt a rising and falling in the stream down my leg, and I cried in the forest alone for my beautiful father gone too soon, for myself and all my ignorance, not even knowing my own wars, the ones already fought or the many to still come. That was Jan Beatty reading her poem, The Body Wars, from New England Review 40.4. Jan's book, Jackknife, New and Selected Poems, won the 2018 Patterson Poetry Prize. And her book, The Switching Yard, was named one of Library Journal's 30 new books that will help you rediscover poetry. Jan is the MFA Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at Carlow University. The following piece by Greg Johnson is an excerpt from his longer essay, Daddy's H. You can read it in full in New England Review 40.4. Jan wrote about how easy it is to lose touch with oneself when the outside world is so loud. Greg's essay touches on a similar sentiment. It is a subtle observation of his father's wasting away. He describes of a working-class man whose skill and artistry are lost as they slip through the cracks of merciless monotony in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is Greg Johnson. Daddy's H. I began with a poem. Oh God, my swineherd God, send me two pigs, please, to swallow my two demons. Drive them like nails into the poor pig's brains. Better make it three, three pigs. That's from Morris Manning, The Prayer for Pigs. The stench stayed with me. What well, might have been taken for the faint smell of bacon fried in a cast iron skillet turned out to be burning hog offal. Flesh, bone, and all that was not worthy even of the cheapest hot dogs and bologna was sent to the furnace and incinerated. White plumes of smoke blew continuously from multiple smokestacks surrounding the parking lot. We never used the formal East Tennessee Packing Company. We called it Daddy's Work, or sometimes Selecto, the brand of meat produced in the plant. But most of the time we simply said, the packing house. The plant was located in South Knoxville near Tennessee River. The main gate was at the end of a dead-end street that crossed over a winding set of railroad tracks that disappeared into the packing house where animals were shuttled to their death. The plant resembled a prison I saw while reading a 1969 World Book Encyclopedia Daddy bought from a door-to-door -door salesman and which I imagined Brushy Mountain Penitentiary, just a two-hour drive down the road, might look like. There were several brick buildings with visible stairs crisscrossing the outsides, each leading to the plant, the inside of which was seen only by those who worked there. A chain-link fence surrounded the compound, with a guard stationed at the main gate, keeping out anyone who was not official personnel. They all wore mandatory uniforms, white pants and matching white shirt, topped with a matching hard hat. Cruelty, insensitivity, 
and violence were cultivated as virtues in the slaughterhouse, as they had to do only one thing day in and day out, kill hogs. My father's specialty was removal of the H bone. This bone is less familiar than the hock bone at the end of the pig's leg, the one that my people used to season collard greens and pinto beans. Buried just under the skin, the H is like the support in a mattress or the stud in the wall of a pre-war house, concealed, unnoticeable, yet necessary. Most refer to this as the hip bone, which provides support. Walk, run, stand, sit. The H is essential. But for butchers like Daddy, it must be removed. The hock bone can be used for seasoning, but left in too long, the H will rot the meat. If the East Tennessee Packing Company was on the lowest rung of the slaughtering ladder, then Brookhaven Farms was somewhere near the top. Daddy spent most of his days at the packing house, but once in a while he'd get a call to come work at Brookhaven. Brookhaven meant that Daddy could put on an outfit of his own choosing, usually a pressed and creased pair of blue jeans, cowboy boots he'd bought at a store that also sold Hoover vacuum cleaners, an iron short sleeve shirt, and a University of Tennessee ball cap. Once he got cleaned and quaffed, he'd finish things off by spraying himself from head to toe with Ralph Lauren Safari cologne that Mama bought for him at the mall. Mama would boast about all the free stuff she got from someone she knew who worked at the department store, leaving out the part where she had to spend upwards to $50 to get that deal. For years, our family got Ralph Lauren accessories for Christmas presents, umbrellas, tote bags, towels. The regifting was endless, and we took to saying that Daddy smelled like a French whore, though, of course, we had no clue what a French whore looked like, much less how one might smell. Often, he would take me along to Brookhaven. As I sat and watched him work, he would periodically motion me over to show just how he could remove the H without even so much as a hint of meat on the bone. He pulled the bone out, held it up in front of his face, and turned it counterclockwise to inspect the work. He'd then turn to me, flash his false teeth smile, and say, Looky here, not a drop of meat on that bone. Not just anybody can do that. I might have muttered something like, Wow, Daddy, that's good. I don't remember. More likely, I just watched him as he turned back to get another hand to start over again, probably wondering when he'd be done. No matter how many Brookhavens called him, there would always be more unrelenting packing house shifts. Still, Brookhaven validated Daddy in a way that the packing house never could. Perhaps what made the difference for him was not so much the work being done, but those who called him to do the work. At the packing house, he was just an interchangeable part assigned to an instrumental role in the production line. At Brookhaven, he saw himself valued for what he knew was his skill, talent, and what I would say was his creative work. Sometimes I think that the way he removed the H-bone was nothing short of the work of an artist, even though Daddy would have never allowed for this. The phrase, work of art, was nowhere to be found in the horizon of a Packenhouse butcher. Yet when he talked about his work and how the ham remained structurally and even aesthetically intact, he did so the way some painters describe particular brushstrokes or the way writers might discuss their approach to craft. 
even though he had more control over his work at Rokavan, once the ammonia smell evaporated from the virginal tables upon which he performed his task, it revealed itself to be just another version of what lay behind the chain-link fence in South Knoxville. A packing house is a packing house. Still, getting a call from those who we believe are important to our work counts. Being able to wear your own cologne and your own boots while doing your own work is a difference that makes a difference. was a teardrop-shaped scar on Daddy's right cheek, which was more prominent than the one on his chin that looked like someone had pinched him, leaving a straight line of squished flesh. I never heard him say how either got there, but I favored them. The absence of his facial scars was the first thing I noticed when I saw him lying in his open casket. The handiwork of embalming fluid had erased his defining lines, leaving us with a characterless face that I hardly recognized. His scars could have been a result of something that happened at the packing house. I don't recall ever asking him, but I wouldn't be surprised since the packing house claimed him long before the rest of us did. He was certain that the packing house contributed to the pancreatitis that finally killed him. I am less sure, but I do know that his work did to him what he did to those knives he kept in our house, turned unused perfection into something worn out and useless. I am positive that Daddy suffered the melancholic evils associated with his work. Forced to slump day after day over his work table, he strained to keep his eyes on the object of his imagined creation, the non-threatening, beautiful hams that were eventually to hang in grocery stores, and he learned to look away from the violence necessary for the creation and the creator to be at one. The truth, his truth, was a lived knowledge that he created something beautiful to behold while simultaneously producing despair that lingered like the smell of death and rot. Three decades, thousands of hogs, knives ground to uselessness, life imitating art, man imitating beast. Showing frustration with being tossed out like one of the pieces of viscera he himself had thrown away on too many occasions to remember, he had often shout, Nobody runs my goddamn life. Packenhouse did. When Daddy died, I asked for two things. The K guitar Mama gave him for their first wedding anniversary in 1959 and his packing house stuff. In a cardboard box, I found two old Dexter butcher knives, their midsections long ground away to nothing. They were tucked away in the metal holster he always carried, still attached to the old white belt I once wore, and his hat. The hard hat he always wore, pockmarked with dings, dents, and scars from years of use, was right there on top of the box. First thing I did was smell it. It was still a barely detectable depressing odor. After nearly three decades, the packing house had become as much a part of that hat as it had become of Daddy. What a disgusting sight, I remember thinking. That hat, lording over his closet and him, positioned to remind him every time he got dressed who he really was and all that was gained and lost under its brim. Why would he want to keep such filthy things? Why would I want to keep them? I've come to see more clearly that no matter how they understood themselves, the self-understanding was forced in accordance with the packing house in a cadence lived somewhere in between being fully worthy and wholly useless. 
Sometimes I think I wanted his packing house relics because they carry reminders of Daddy's own hidden but detectable aches, ones he tried to remove throughout his life, much like the H-bone of all those hogs, but he was never able to do so. Yes, these things are disgusting. At the same time, they're remarkable because they reveal something about my father that nothing else ever could. How he lived the particular aches of a debilitating defeatism in concert with a hidden hope, all taking place under the sign of the Packing House. Looking down from Gay Street Bridge where Old Knoxville has become New Old Knoxville, I can see that the Packing House is no longer there. All that remains are the railroad tracks. They stand as a reminder to the innumerable animals carried to the waiting, death-dealing hands of men like my daddy and how a great number of men like him spent their lives covered in hog meat, bone, and blood, forever hits to the invented tools of their decline and value. Daddy would never have thought this, nor would he have probably understood any of what I just wrote, at least not in that exact way. He'd simply smile when over the years I began to ask more about how he was able to do what he did and whether he thought of his work as anything other than just that. Pursing his lips and wrinkling that squished scar on his chin, Daddy would just say, I'd kill a lot of pigs. Greg Johnson reading from his essay, Daddy's Age. The original piece can be found in its entirety in New England Review 40.4, which is available in print or ebook on www.nereview.com. Greg grew up in Appalachia and is currently a professor of philosophy at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington. He has a PhD in philosophy and an MFA from Rainier Writing Workshop. Our final piece today is a poem by Jacob Meyer, and while it is not about fathers, it certainly is about place in America. It is about disappointment and unmet expectations, and perhaps the loss and retrieval of hope. Jacob is the managing editor of Peach Mag. He received his MFA from Syracuse University and recently joined the team at Story Machine Games. Two of his poems can be found in New England Review 40.4. Once again, you are listening to NER Out Loud, and this is Jacob Meyer. Food Court Ghost Town The legends of American life do not specify how to value youth, our time in and out of school and movie theaters, how to not want just one new thing when I'm all out of money again. The kids go to Shopping Town, USA, just to kill a little time. When Kay called about her friend who wasn't shot outside the Cinnabon, but lost a baby anyway, from the stress of it all, I went to see a movie about cowboys. Migratory birds nested in the food court, righteously shat in my $3 burrito. And maybe I needed it. Sitting alone like I own every place I think big thoughts in. In the movie, even the toughest men sit to drink and laugh before slinging their guns for no good reason. What if we gather like their horses at the trough, 
before galloping at the blazing horizon. Maybe we can buck off our riders. Maybe the sunset won't be red. That was Jacob Meyer with Food Court Ghost Town. And that's it for today. If you have any thoughts about the pieces read on our podcast today, let us know. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook. And if you just want more of New England Review, come to our website, www.nereview.com. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by New England Review at Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. Our original theme song is by Thomas Wentworth. Other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Carolyn Keebler is our editor-in-chief. Marsha Pomerantz is our managing editor. And Eli Sutton is our office manager. This episode was produced and edited by me, Rahama Weil. I'm one of the New England Review winter interns for 2020. I'd also like to give a shout out to the other winter intern, Susan Deutsch, who helped with every step of this process. If you have a favorite piece from the magazine you would like to hear read out loud, email us at nereview at middlebury.edu. Otherwise, keep listening and subscribe on our website, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Once again, this is NER Out Loud. Thank you for listening.